This morning, we're going to talk about something that modern culture has tried to redefine, and that is sexuality. They've tried to redefine it as a personal right to be exercised in any way that a person wants. Sexual behavior is considered to be a personal choice on the same level as buying a house or buying the new iPhone. Popular opinion has all but tried to remove the word sin from our culture's vocabulary, running with the idea that only sexual expression considered wrong is what is deemed wrong by the definer. Sexual sin is such, an is such a big enslaver of many because mankind has never been given the right to determine what is sin and what isn't sin, and yet that's exactly what we have tried to do. Our society, our culture has gone on a mission to redefine sexuality, to try to redefine what is right and what is wrong, going against the very nature of what God has created. You see, the one who created sexuality and the one who is the one who gets to define its guidelines and set the boundaries. When God created Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, he brought them together in marriage, pronounced it very good, and at that time, God introduced sexuality and the parameters for its expression identifying any sexual activity outside of the husband-wife relationship as a violation of this gift. This includes fornification, homosexuality, pornography, and lust are all violation of God's intent when he created the sexual act. But to give us a better understanding of what sexual sin and bondage are, we first need to look at what the Bible actually teaches us about sex. And there are two things that I want us to understand. First, we need to understand that God created sex and he called it good. He called it good. Uh, sex has become such a taboo topic within church that I often wonder if we even remember that it was created before the fall because of how taboo it has become. Uh, but I have, to I have to wonder if the reason for this tabooness about sex is because a majority of us in some way or another are enslaved to sexual bondage or have been victims of sexual sin for so long that even thinking about God creating it, let alone calling it good, seems so bizarre and uncomfortable. But let's look at Genesis 1, 27 to 28. God says this, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice the order. First, God created man and woman in his own image. He creates man and women first and then gives the command in verse 27 to be fruitful and multiply. I'm not sure how much you know about how anatomy and reproduction works, but there's only one way that you're going to be fruitful and multiply. There's only one way. But then look what he says about in verse 31, in Genesis 1:31. He then says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. If God calls something good, guess what it is? Good, that's right, it's good. And you know what I have never heard someone do? I have never had someone in the context of marriage say that they wish they had never had sex. 
I've had people tell me that they wish they wouldn't have had sex with a particular person, but it's never that they wish they never had sex at all. And you know why? Because God created it and called it good. And when it's used for intended purposes, it's very good. So what are those intended purposes? Glad you asked. To give us the answer, we're going to look back. We're going to continue to look in Genesis really quick. And he created it for two purposes. God created sex to serve two purposes. One, procreation. And we already looked at that. Genesis 1.28, where he says that God created man and woman and told them to multiply and fill the earth. This also tells us that God had a very specific reason for designing the male and female body the way that he did. But the beauty of it is that God didn't just make sex for procreation, he also made it for unity. You see this in Genesis 2.24, where, where God gives a detailed account and the more detailed account of the purpose of what it was designed for. Genesis 2.24 tells us this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and, is, and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Becoming one flesh in sexual intimacy is often re reflected in the life of a child. The child is one new whole individual, but separate life created through the physical union of two people. The child is a blend of the husband and wife. Sadie, my oldest daughter looks almost identical to my wife, Alex. But her personality is almost identical to me. <laughs> Some of you laugh because you know what that personality is. <laughs> Lillian, we're still waiting, because she's almost 11 months old. But as far as her personality has come out, from way of looks, she looks more like me than Sadie does, and personality is more like Alex. But it's still a blend. But isn't that, the, that's always the great debate with kids. Who looks like, who does the child look more like, mom or dad? And everybody has their own opinions. But when a husband and wife join together in sexual intimacy, they become one not just in the physical level, but the whole human existence. The biblical view of one flesh communicates a unity that covers every facet of a couple's joint life. In marriage, two whole lives unite together as one emotionally, intellectually, financially, spiritually. The design is that husband and wife become one in purpose. They are so close that they function like one person, balancing each other's strengths and weaknesses so that together they can fulfill their God-given calling. So there it is, the original design and purpose. And using sex outside of the original design and purpose is how one fails and begins to be enslaved by it. You also need to remember that when God creates something good, Satan seeks to pervert such things. Satan has challenged the authority of God from the very beginning and continues to challenge that authority to this very day. And when we use sexuality for our entertainment or to satisfy lust, we cheapen the beauty of this powerful gift and defy the one who designed it. You see, Satan is meticulous. He is very careful and precise and shows great attention to detail. And being in sexual bondage isn't just something where Satan snaps his fingers and all of a sudden you find yourself in bondage. It's a slow deception that we don't even see coming, and it always starts way before our deepest and worst moments. And no one knows this better than King David, who in 2 Samuel 11 finds himself entrapped in sexual bondage. So if you haven't already, turn with me to 2 Samuel 11, and let's look at this together. First, we're going to look at the process of enslavement. In 2 Samuel 11, 1-5, we see that it is easy 
to fall into sexual sin. It is easy. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5 tells us this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servant with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's important to note that the war that the Israelites were fighting with the Ammonites was a result of the previous year's war against the Syrians that the Ammonites actually started. See, the Ammonites had hired the Syrians to fight David and the Israelites after David sent ambassadors to the king to pay their respects to the king's dad who had just died. No ill will was on behalf of David. He was simply saying, we are here for you, and, we sent, and he sent messengers to comfort the king because his dad had just died. But what the Ammonites took that as, as they were sending spies, so they hired the Syrians to fight the Israelites. So that was the current battle a year from this account was they were fighting the Syrians, and now it was time for them to punish the Ammonites for their insult to the ambassadors. And right away, from verse 1, we know something is wrong. If you look at 2 Samuel 11, 1 again, you see this phrase. The time period when kings go out to battle. kings go out so it was David had no excuse to not be going out to battle the time was for the kings to go into battle the second half of verse one tells us this but David remained at Jerusalem in other words he should not be at Jerusalem those words should not be there if David is truly if David was in tune with what God was calling him to do as king those words would not be written there David should have been abroad fighting alongside his people, but David neglects his business and pays gratefully for it. It's at this moment that David finds himself unknowingly being led into bondage. It's easy. Then David gets up from his afternoon nap, which was customary, takes a walk on the flat roof terrace, which was also customary for for the men to do. Only difference is, is now that he's alone and this stroll on the terrace actually took place about five hours sooner than it should have. The custom, the custom time for the kings and the, and the men of the house to take their stroll on the terrace was in the evening when the sun was setting. We're told, in the, we're told here that he does it in the early afternoon, which at the, was the customary time for the women to be bathing. It's like there's, it was set up for a reason that way. And David just find himself taking a stroll early in the afternoon. Why? Very simple. He's bored. He is bored. He finds himself bored. He should be fighting. He's neglecting his duties. And just because he's neglecting his duties abroad doesn't mean that he has more duties to do at home. No, he's, he's sitting at home. He doesn't know what to do. And so he gets bored, so he goes for a walk. Idle hands are used by the enemy to lead us into bondage. All of his servants, everybody's gone. Anybody that would hold him accountable is gone at this moment. So he's looking for something to do to pass the time. And so David goes on his walk and he sees Bathsheba taking her afternoon bath and all bets are off at this moment. 
David is alone, he's bored, and his interest is piqued. As soon as he sees, and I never picked up on this before, but the text literally says, he said to oneself, which means David said this to himself. Is that not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? David is looking, he's allowing his eyes to wander, and he knows exactly who he just laid eyes on. He even says it to himself. That's Bathsheba. And he knew that her husband wasn't home. David had a choice. He could have simply turned around and walked back inside, yes, but he was already entrapped. He was already entrapped. And then he sends his messengers to her and invites her over. In 2 Samuel 11:4, if you look at that, it's a very important verse because it says she came to him. In the original Hebrew language, this phrase means consensual or they chose to act. Which means that Bathsheba had every chance to say no. This was not a command from David to Bathsheba. This was a request from David to Bathsheba. What David was doing was trying to make this seem as right as possible. When David sends his messengers to Bathsheba and they show up at her front door, this was customary of how a king would request a wife. But the difference is is that the female is usually single when he does this, when the king does this, and requests her presence. And so when she opened her door, she knew why they were there, and she knew exactly what she was doing and what she was signing up for. This was not forced on her. She was not raped. She chose to go to David. We also know, we can also infer that this is consensual because in the list of David's sins, rape is not one of them. And we find out that they both suffer the consequences for the sexual immorality. Yeah, this is one of those moments where her husband's off to war and she's been watching the romance novels and reading those books and her heart was fluttering, dreaming of the king wanting to be with her and then his messengers show up at the door. Satan had been working in her as well. This is not all on David. This was a slow and meticulous process by the enemy. And it's just one thing after another that builds on this situation and shows us the second thing about sexual sin. And that is that it contaminates slowly and brings about shame. So they do the deed. They've had their Netflix and chill moment. And now come to the moment where anyone who has ever found themselves in sexual bondage can identify with. And that is the moment where you hope no one finds out. They probably left the fling with the agreement that they wouldn't say anything. You don't tell your husband, I don't tell anybody in my court. We leave it at that. See, they needed to keep their sin under wraps because of how it would look on David as king. His status as king would be greatly tarnished. But then also, sleeping with one of the servants who was fighting in the war's wife would have been frowned upon because he was supposed to be fighting. It would have also been deadly for Bathsheba because of the, pun- the punishment for an adulteress was death. Only problem is that a month or two later, she sends word back to David and says, hey, you remember a month ago we had this fling? We kind of slept together? Well, uh, I'm now pregnant. And I could just see the color fall out of David's face. He realizes that his world has come crashing down, and how on earth was he going to conceal this now? This pregnancy has just added a whole new layer of bondage. 
And it's going to be really hard to say the baby isn't his when all the rest of Israel, including her husband, is out fighting the battle. It's one of those where you do the math and you go, something's not adding up. That's when David hatches what he thinks is this great plan. And it's not repenting and it's not going to God in prayer. He calls Uriah home because he thinks, well, if I call him home and allow him to be at home, surely he'll want to have sex with Bathsheba. And then in a couple months, they'll think that the baby is actually his, regardless that it looks like David. So David does that. He calls him home, tells him to go home and be with his family. Only problem is that Uriah is a noble man and doesn't go home because Uriah understands his position and job, and he's not about to go get to enjoy time at home, get to sleep with his wife, if his fellow servants are out on the battlefield fighting the war. He sleeps at the door of the king to protect him during a time of battle. Uriah is still doing the noble thing. He was still doing his job. That's when David goes, man, come on, Uriah, what are you thinking? Starts to, you can, you can see how it unravels. He's starting to blame you, right? If only you would just go sleep with your wife. Getting angry. So what does he do? He decides to get him drunk. Throws this feast. Decides to celebrate Uriah and says, if I get him drunk, then surely he'll want to go home and have sex with his wife. But even in a, in a full drunken state, Uriah still sleeps at the king's door. Now David is completely panicked and he doesn't know what to do. He's really messed up and begins to believe the lie that what he has done cannot be undone. And in a sense, he's right. There's, there's no way to not let the baby come. The baby's going to be here. And people are surely going to find out. But what David begins to do is begins to try to deal with his problems in his own power. David has fallen victim to his shame, and it's led him to more bondage. But here's the thing, David's shame didn't begin in verse 13 when Uriah slept with the other servants, nor did it begin in verse, thir- verse 4 when he had sex with Bathsheba. His shame started in verse 1 when he chose not to go with his soldiers into battle. For a moment of pleasure, David has found himself face to face with the consequence of his actions. He's so deep in the bondage of his sin, so contaminated by his choice to sleep with Bathsheba that he allows his decisions to be run by his sin instead of turning to the one that David knew all too well had the power to break him free from the chains that he found himself in. Regardless, he continues to try to cover this sin and make everything look like it's okay. And that's one of the most dangerous things about sexual bondage is that it can be easily hidden and manipulated. To be honest, I know that 99% of us sitting in this room have some form of sexual bondage, either in our past or are currently struggling with it. Because that's the thing about sexual bondage is that it crosses all different types of planes. I'm not saying that everyone is having an affair. But what I am saying is that is that one look, the thoughts, some of us the affair, some of us the pornography, some of us the self-pleasure, some form or another, I can guarantee that 99% of us are in some type of bondage and don't want to say anything because we are in the same boat as David. We are too afraid to let go of our status or that our status will be ruined. David finds himself running out of options, as many of us who are in bondage think. And he comes to the point where he breaks this idea 
that the only way to break out of this bondage is to kill Uriah and take Bathsheba to be his wife. Only problem is that murder is frowned upon. Still is. So David hatches one more plan. He will make it look like Uriah was simply killed fighting the war that David should have been fighting. He will simply have Joab move Uriah to the front lines and withdraw everyone away, guaranteeing Uriah's death. (laughs) This is even the crazier part. David is so blinded by his sin that he not only writes the order to hand to Joab, he makes Uriah deliver it. Gives it in a sealed envelope and says, take this to Joab. These are the next orders. And little did Uriah know that he was carrying his death certificate in his hand. Because the shame was so great that David couldn't look at Uriah and say, Uriah, I had a moment of weakness. I need you to forgive me. I slept with your wife and now she is pregnant with my child. Instead of that, he says, the only way out is that if I have Uriah killed and I'm going to take Bathsheba as my wife... And I'm going to look like a hero then because her husband died on the battlefield and now this widower is going, is, is going to be here and she's going to be in mourning, but I'm going to take her as my wife and oh, happy day, honeymoon baby. That's what's going through David's mind right now. So he has, it, he has the order delivered and, and Joab being the noble man that he is follows the orders. But then Joab sends a messenger back to David, and I love this, to let him know that what he, what he had done had been ordered. But he also confronts David of the corruption that resulted of his sexual bondage. Because Joab knew that what David had requested was not normal. That was not normal for, for kings to do to their own men. It wasn't normal. Joab knew something was up, and he calls me. He says, what are you doing? Why would you do this to Uriah? And you know what David does? Instead of taking another chance to repent of his sin and turn and make it right, David goes, he might have died in war anyways. He's just simply trying to justify his sin, make excuses for what he had done. But not only is he not taking responsibility, he manipulates it to look like a hero. And even though he wanted an, oh, honeymoon baby, how sweet moment, only problem is that his sexual bondage was beginning to unravel. In his mind, he was making things right. But God is never to be fooled. You may be doing a very good job right now of hiding your sexual sin to man's eyes, but you are not hiding anything from God. And God is not to be fooled. God is not to be mocked. 2 Samuel 12, 14 Matt read this for us. This is where the unintended consequence when after uh, God sends Nathan to rebuke David, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But the unintended consequence is not only the big one is that the child that, that David made with Bathsheba in that moment is, is to die. And the way that Nathan does it is he, is he proves that, one, David is still a nobleman by bringing up this parable of a legal matter. And that David still has a true concern for justice when he's not blinded by his own passion or sin. David confesses that he has a genuine repentance, and yet the result of his action remains. Number one, the child born to him in Bathsheba will die. And number two, David's sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonai, all will die by the sword. And not only that, Absalom will rebel against David and end up laying with his concubines on a rooftop. All of those things still happen, the consequences of his sin. 
the phrase, if I only would have known that would have happened, I would have never done it. I wish I could take it back. David found himself entangled in sexual bondage, and before he knew it, he was deeper in bondage than he ever thought possible. So there, there, there's what we learned from David. But I, I want to make it sure we understand this, that, that, that this was a process. Okay, the enemy, again, is very meticulous. And so while they're preparing for war, the enemy sits standing there, and he's watching David. He's watching what David's doing, and he's getting things ready. He's got this block that he, he's getting ready to wrap David's chain around. And he's, he's getting ready. Saying, all right, now all I need David to do is not go to war. And he puts it in, into his mind that, that, that he needs to stay home. So that's what he does. And so at that moment, David picks up his chain, unknowingly picks up his chain. He's staying home. Then he decides that he's going to go for that walk. And he wraps that chain around his leg, unknowingly, that he is now in bondage. He is now in bondage. And as he continues to try to do his duties, then he sees, then he sees Bathsheba. And you know, what he, you know what it does? It wraps around again. Now it's a little bit heavier. And I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to get tired. And then he, he realizes who Bathsheba is, and he sends the messengers. And eventually what he does is he gets so close that he realizes that he's in so deep. And instead of just finding a way to unhook it, he thinks he has to carry this in, entangled to himself and carry this wherever he goes. And it eventually wears him down where he says, the only way out is that if I just simply kill Uriah, and then it's all done. Except do you know what happens is that he then drops it and, it, and it entangles him, and it keeps him there. He's now not going anywhere. He is stuck. And how many of us do that? We think just one more look isn't bad. And all it does is it continues to wrap around us. It continues to drape over us to where it is so heavy. We're so tired. We're so tired of fighting. Twelve years of my life, I spent pursuing relationship after relationship, looking for that satisfaction that I only found the first time I looked at pornography when I was nine years old. Nine years old, and for 12 years, I took this chain and I kept wrapping it around myself, and I was tired. We get tired, and I was at the end of my rope until one day, one day, God finally put me in a position where I couldn't say no. I had messed around with girls in high school, but they never let me have the full experience of what I wanted. And it wasn't until I was on a, on a cam site where I ended up spending $200 to have a false experience with a woman. What I didn't think about was that the more times I hit buy tokens to keep that experience going, I eventually maxed out my mom's credit card and knew I was done for because there was no way I could explain a $200 charge on her credit card without coming clean. My tokens ran out. The woman left my screen and I was left feeling alone, which is exactly where the enemy wants you to be. It's exactly where the enemy wants you to be. But the crazy thing is I went to my mom and I told her what would happen and I was expecting Thor's hammer to come down on me. She looks at me and she says, well, I guess you're going to have to work hard to pay me back. 
And I cannot tell you what that meant for me because my mom was able to give me freedom. I had the strength to go tell my youth pastor what I had just done because I realized that the lie the enemy was feeding me wasn't true and that God wanted me to be free and God wants you to be free. Were there consequences? Absolutely there were. I lost some responsibilities in youth group, but I wasn't kicked out of youth group. My youth pastor actually made sure I was in youth group more. And that's the thing, breaking free. Breaking free begins with repentance. 2 Samuel 12, 13, we see the moment David is confronted by Nathan, and he confesses that he sinned and gives an honest repentance. You cannot break free of these chains until you repent and you admit that you have chains. Until you admit that the chains are there. And to repent means to make an about face. You leave them there, you turn the other direction, and you run from whatever it was, from the sexual bondage that you stayed in. Jesus knew how prevalent sexual bondage and sexual sin is, so much so that in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that if you looked at someone with lust, you have committed adultery with that person in your heart. This means that if you've taken one glance at someone and had thoughts about wanting to sleep with them or do anything sexual, you are guilty of sexual sin and you must repent of it. But what else Jesus tells us in this passage is a warning of continuing to indulge in that. He tells us in the following verses that if you can't stop sinning, then it is far better to lose limbs than it is to keep on sinning and end up in hell. Can I say that I have a feeling that for some of you, that right arm of Jesus that Jesus is talking about is your smartphone, your tablet, or your computer? How awesome is technology today? Let, let's, let's clarify. It's awesome of how much it is advanced, but we need to also recognize how dangerous it is and how some of us shouldn't, simply shouldn't have access to it. We need to get rid of it. But Sean, I can't imagine life without my smartphone. I need my phone. You aren't suggesting that I use a non-smartphone, smartphone, are you? That's just not the culture we live in anymore. There has to be another way. You know, what this, you know what scripture tells us to do with culture? In Romans 12, 2, we're, we are commanded to not be conformed to the patterns of this world. If the patterns of this world are causing you to sin, then you cut yourself off from the pattern of this world. If your phone, if your, if your phone every day, if your phone causes you to sin, you know what some of you need to do? You need to go home tonight and you need to smash it with a hammer. And get rid of it. It is far better to lose that phone than it is to find yourself in hell. You think I'm kidding. I'm not. Look at what happened to David. His life was never the same. And he paid greatly for it. But here's the other side of it. Here's the other side, and I want you to hear me say this so desperately. You cannot do this alone. Breaking free cannot be done alone. God sends Nathan. God sends Joab. God even uses Uriah to try to speak to David. And does David listen? Not until Nathan. Nathan doesn't beat around the bush. He calls out David and lets him know exactly what he has done and how foolish it was. 
If you want to be truly free from sexual bondage, you need to find someone who can hold you accountable. Now, you can smash your phone, but what keeps you from going to buy another one? What keeps you from doing that? Someone looking at you and saying, you know you don't need to do that. You know you can't do that. I'll tell you, I'm walking with many guys right now. And I'm going to brag on him. Tyler and I have been walking through this. And Tyler looked at me one day and he said, Sean, I need you to take my PlayStation. And so I have his PlayStation at my house. There's no judgment. He hasn't lost his status. In fact, the Lord welcomes that. Don't worry, I haven't smashed it with a hammer. (laughs) But until you are walking with someone, you will always be enslaved to it. And you know what? This Thursday at 7, we're starting another round of the Conquer series. And this is so much more than just another class. When you sign up for the Conquer series, you join with a band of brothers who are willing to go to war with you, who join in the war for your soul. Don't try to fight this battle alone. We need to turn now to Acts 13, which is the second part that that Matt read for us. And this is where God says, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Did you catch that again? Read, Read it again. Listen to this. I have found in David, King David, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought Jesus, the man who slept with another man's wife, who got her pregnant, tried to hide it, had her husband murdered, is a man after my own heart who is going to bring about Jesus. Through his line, Jesus is going to come into the world. Your Savior came from the line of an adulterer. That's what the enemy wants you to hear, but he was an adulterer. And the enemy wants us to think that there's no way out. And that's the third part, is realizing that sexual sin is not an omnipotent enemy. Sexual sin does not make you completely helpless. Sexual sin and bondage and shame is not bigger than God. I know, you've tried to fight it, you've fought the urges, you have fought the temptation of being home alone on your computer, you fought those temptations of your husband working late and needing to feel loved, you fought the feelings of rejection, and so you allow yourself to be used and abused by someone because you so desperately want to be loved in a way that only God can love you. You see, I know that sexual bondage is not an omnipotent enemy because I know someone who has overcome their own bondage, not just me. I want to invite Dylan up here. Matt, do you still have the microphone? Uh, I, want, I want Dylan to share his story. Dylan took part in our Conquer series, uh, the first round. Thank you. And so, and he shared his testimony, and I, and I want you to hear his story of freedom so that you know it's not just me. Go ahead, Dylan. You share your story. Okay. Um, my testimony, I will tell you what I struggled with. So I will go back all the way to 2015, 2016-ish. My parents got divorced, so Satan put some wounds in my mind of the constant fighting. Later, my grandma gave me my first iPad. 
So I played video games on it and started to watch YouTube. But this is where things went south. I came across a video of wolves in heat. At the time, I didn't know what this meant, so I clicked on it. Of course, what it was was wolves mating. Immediately, a neurological pathway of pornography was born. So I continued to watch it. Later, my family stopped going to church, so I started to strengthen the truth of God, the bondage. Later, it, it began to create what we learned in the Conquer series, an arousement template. And I began to act out. After this, for a few years, no truth of God being fed into me. Later, I got my first phone, and this was a disaster. Satan used my past wounds plus the past pornography to twist my mind into pulling me deeper. My sexual bondage later led to, de to de depression. Uh, depression. Because of my depression, I was convinced that I didn't want to live anymore. So I thought I'd be a quick way out. So I thought getting hit by a train was the quickest way out. So I asked my dad if we could go train watching. So we went right, so we went. right when we w went down to Claypool, we waited for like five minutes, and we heard, a, we heard a horn. So I got a huge adrenaline dump. So we went over to the tracks to see. There was a singular Dash 9 locomotive hauling auto racks, speeding around 50 miles an hour uh, down, the east, down, the line, down the east line, heading west. So it was coming my way. So a, mix, a mixture of a 426,000-pound Dash 9 going 50 miles an hour, blasting its horn, is quite terrifying. So my amygdala kicked in, and I froze. So God saved me that day. And the craziest part is, is only intermodal trains take that line. So every time we go down there, it's only an intermodal train going, taking east to west. So if you think deeper into this odd time of an Autorack train taking that way, it's nothing but God. I wish I could say that that was the end, but then Satan, Satan came again, and I found myself struggling with suicidal thoughts. I had a horrible day, being tossed to and fro from Satan, putting low self-esteem thoughts in my mind. And I, found my, I found myself not wanting to live anymore. It was then I, that I asked God in prayer, a mixture of mentally and physically speaking, do you love me? And on the corner of my room, the sun was shining through the window. And I heard a, a firm whisper, yes. And I thought about it, of what I just heard. My heart told me that it was God. God said, or God said, saying, yes, my son, I love you. Then I was in awe, and all the bitter emotions of the day were gone. Through that, I later conquered depression. Revival and hope. So at this point, I began to pray more about conquering sexual sin. I was fed up with watching the pornography. So one night this summer, after the youth group bonfire, one of my buddies was like, hey, you coming to Conquer Series kickoff tonight? So I was like, yeah, sure. At this time, I didn't know what this was but some Bible study. So I was like, okay, sweet. So right when I walked in, I figured out, it was about sexual purity. I was so hyped. Now I am on the front lines whooping Satan's butt. <laughs> now that God has taught me a perfect plan, I can fight with confidence with my fellow battle partners. I encourage you to join the Conquer Series because God answered my prayer and saved me from the snare of torment. I thank God so much. 
I'll leave you with this. Zechariah 4, 6. I am a warrior in Christ, not by might, nor by power, but by spirit, saith the Lord. Thank you for listening. Hopefully it inspires. Amen. Amen. Now, just like Dylan, you have the opportunity to find that same freedom. When you realize that shame is only the enemy trying to keep you in the chains. Dylan's fight is not over. My fight is not over. The enemy knows that sexual sin was able to put us in chains, and so he's going to continually try to put us back in those chains. The enemy doesn't use anything new. The fight continues, but the most important piece in breaking from sexual bondage is realizing that sexual bondage does not define you. The defining moment, I would argue, is written in Acts 13, 22, and 23 for David's life. Notice the verse doesn't say, if David would only have not slept with Bathsheba and gotten her pregnant, then I might have used him to bring about Jesus. That's not what it says. God will redeem our lives. God will redeem your sexual bondage. And when he does, you get to watch him use something that in your life was probably one of the darkest moments of your life. For his glory and to bring others out of the ashes, you are stuck just as deep. I was stuck for 12 years, spiraling deeper and deeper, finding my identity and what I was doing with girls and what I was watching on my computer. Jesus calls me a son of God. Satan calls me an adulterous, pornography-loving sinner. Jesus says, I have prepared a place for you, Sean. Satan says, you have no place with Jesus. Satan tells me that my life isn't good enough for me to spend eternity in heaven. Jesus says, he's right. That's why you're judged according to my life. Jesus says, you are defined by me and nothing else. So what are you going to allow your life to be defined by? Are you going to continue to live in sexual bondage? Are you going to allow Christ to break you free? Three next steps for you. Number one, repent of sexual sin and turn to Jesus. Doing so is very easy. And again, it starts of confessing that you have chains, that you are in bondage, and you repent of that, and you leave those chains, and you go the other way, and you turn to Jesus and realize that it's his payment on the cross that covers your sin. Number two, you find accountability. Make sure you find someone to hold you accountable. Find your Nathan that will tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. Sign up for the Conquer series. Men, join the Conquer series this Thursday. And, and on the screen, you see this is what the, the down here, the, under the resources tab, click on Conquer series and you'll see this banner. And it's a simple way to sign up or you can put it on the communication card and we'll making sure that you get the information you need to join us. But it's going to start at 7 p.m. in the youth room. And this is walking alongside of other men who understand your struggle. And number three, don't let sexual bondage define you. My prayer is that this is not the end, but only the beginning of the fight. It is time that the church break the mold and stop being silent on sexual bondage. And it's time that we no longer allow our sexual bondage to define us and live in shame. It is time to allow God to break us free from our bondage and be a church and that lives in freedom and is used by God to change the world. Lord, thank you so much. God, and we ask, God, that you bring about anything in our lives that we need to break free of. But God, we pray right now specifically for the bondage to sexual sin. God, I pray 
Lord, for those hearts that have yet to break free. God, I pray that this morning they find that freedom, they find that courage to be able to step out and be used by you, God, to be redeemed by you and only you. God, thank you so much that we can find freedom and that our sexual sin does not define us. Our sexual bondage does not define us. God, help us to break free and know that you've already died for it and forgiven us, Lord. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.